Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Dear Baseball Gods, and I've got a great guest today. First repeat guest on the podcast, Kevin Vance, <laughs> pitching coach from the University of Rhode Island, is calling in from the great Northeast. How you doing, Kevin? Doing good. Happy to be the, the first recurring guest. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, I don't know what that says about you. Maybe it's just I'm desperate, or maybe it's that you're great. I don't. I don't really know. I guess we can't really can't really say for sure. I think it's I need to make up for last time. It was a rough showing. I've had a lot of people show me up, so I'm I'm back now to you know get back on the uh, get back on the horse, as they say. Maybe you're just like the mop up guy, and I'm just having <laughs> you. You just got to come out here and eat up all the times when I don't have a, a better guest. I've been there before, so that's <laughs> we fine. both have. Good with me. <laughs> No, but so you just finished up with uh, with your team. Obviously, you guys aren't going to the College World Series. That's a disappointment, but you guys had a good season, I heard. So tell us a little bit about how things have evolved since uh, you were on the show last. Uh, yeah, so we, we just finished on Friday. We got eliminated in our conference tournament. It was kind of a tough end to what I think was really a great year. Um, we were probably the favorite going into the tournament. We were the two seed, probably had the most pitching depth and one of the better lineups. So, you know, we, we probably... You know, it was a little disappointment not, not winning the tournament. But overall, it's baseball, and it happens. So, But we had a really good year. Um, a lot of seniors actually stepped up kind of out of nowhere, guys that were big parts of the program but, you know, hadn't really produced much for three years and then had unbelievable years. Uh, one guy, Mike Corrin, hit 302 with 19 homers, kind of shattered a lot of um, hitting records at URI. Blaze Whitman, we had, you know, another reliever who was – unbelievable out of the bullpen he gave up uh two i looked this up i was crunching the numbers he had 29 inherited runners and only let two score and i know we talked about that just giving up your friends runs how much it sucks he was pretty unbelievable at that yeah it's a uh, heck of a strain rate yeah and you know it was not just seniors we had some freshmen uh tally jangles he led the conference in era i believe um so that was a positive you know for the future going forward we're you know we're going to be good for a while i think you know even though we didn't make it to a regional this year we got a lot to build on and i'm actually really excited for next year now i think we're gonna be even better on the mound which is exciting do you know who did make it to the regional oh umbc umbc my alma mater yes yeah, so they uh, playing who are they playing it's not a super exotic one. They're in the uh, the Winston-Salem regional, and so they have Wake Ooh. Forest, uh, West Virginia, Maryland, and UMBC, which is kind of, it's not very, like I said, not very exotic. It's almost a little yeah. sad they're playing Maryland. I feel like when you go to a regional, one of the exciting things is that you get to play like University yep. of Cuba Sweet. and University of Alaska, and like all these crazy schools that you never <laughs> get to play, but they're like, oh, we just get to play our buddies, everyone down the road. <laughs> but uh, I mean, they did That's great. That's probably good for uh, the budget. Yeah, but uh, yeah, proud of those guys. They did awesome this year, and they 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 had a, a tough start to the season. I mean, they weren't they were very slow getting going, and they just played really good baseball and kind of ran through the conference and you know play play well when it matters. So that's pretty cool. That's the first time they've been in the regional, I think, in thirteen years. Obviously, we never made it when I was there. So overachieving, yeah. they've done done good things there. So, nice. Well, that's a, that's cool. Proud alumni. That's yeah, cool. yeah, it's good to look back and see them uh, continuing to 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 go in the right direction. They've been doing that for a while. So it's, that's exciting, you know, but, uh, so kind of the topic for today's show, I wanted to talk about, we're going to talk a bunch about spin rate, um, some of the sabermetric stuff and some of the, you know, how a pitcher learns to pitch with his arsenal. Obviously we have new tools, you know, out there with all the TrackMan data and Statcast and, uh, Rapsido, And we just know a lot more about all these things about kind of the physics of what's happening with pitchers. So I know we're going to, we're going to talk a bunch about that in a little bit, but, before we get there, I want to chat with you about college baseball versus pro baseball. I know we talked about this just a briefly uh, on our last our last uh, episode, but you're this is your first full season as a pitching coach, your first full season out of pro baseball. Obviously, you played Division One baseball at UConn prior to that, but what did you see this year? I mean, how how does the pro game differ versus the college game? We've talked about you know higher prevalence of breaking balls. Obviously, coaches call pitches. Everyone's fist pumping every inning when you when you get a whole play. <laughs> Um, and you know, these are kids, you know, compared to, you know, guys deeper into pro baseball and, and major leaguers and all that. So there's just a difference, a different game. So what did you see out there, you know, in your first year as a, as a college coach? Yeah. The, the biggest thing is every game really matters. So professional baseball, like if you lose a game in May, it really doesn't matter at all. You know, you could lose 10 in a row in May and you guys could still make the playoffs. Um, in college, 
every single game matters. It's way more emotional. I think that the kids, as you say, their kids, they're much more invested in it. Um, it's, you know, it's more about the team, which is awesome. It's very, it's more merit-based. So, you know, if you don't earn it, if you're not really playing well, you're not really going to pitch as opposed to in the professionally, you know, you're a prospect, you're going to pitch every three days. But the biggest thing, every game matters, you know, because if you lose a midweek game, your RPI goes down, down 10 points, you only have 56 games, that could cost you an at-large bid, um, yeah. stuff like that. So it's ultra, ultra important, um, you know, to be focused every game. And that is why, you know, you see fist pumping and you'll hear guys in pro ball like, oh, that's so college, like you're Johnny College. <laughs> but it I mean, it, it happens for a reason. And I, I really do enjoy that part of it. I, I think there should be more of that in professional baseball, you know, just more fun, you know, maybe not, you know, this stupid eyewash stuff, but just more fun. It's, it's way more fun in college than it is, you know, than it can be in professional baseball. Um, but what else? Let's see. There's a lot more sliders thrown. Uh, yeah. Seems, seems like some guys are, you know, throwing 80% sliders. And I think there's a, there's not as much trust in, a well-executed fastball. Um, I think at URI, not to give out scouting reports to the other teams that we're going to play, but we probably throw more fastballs than anyone um, that we play. We just, you know, trust it, you know, trust that you can execute a fastball and locate it well, or, you know, trust that your off speed's getting you off, getting them off your fastball and just trust it, throw it, you know, not throwing 00 slider, 10 slider, 20 slider, and then, you know, being afraid to get hit sometimes. Uh, I think the slider has become way overused in college. Yeah, and I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was watching the College World Series, like the very last, you know, down to the final two. And the scenario, it just was so frustrating to me. And I'm not going to mention the teams because it, it doesn't really matter. But so Team A had like a two to one lead and they brought in a guy, he was a lefty, he hadn't pitched in a while because he had had some injury, but he was like 6'3", he was like, a, I want to say like a second round pick or maybe like a, a first round comp comp A or comp B or whatever that is. Um, he was a really high draft pick. He was like 91 uh, to 94 from the left side and they were up, so the team that was pitching, I believe they were up like 2-1 to one. and it was the eighth inning, this kid comes in and if he threw, I think he had two outs to get or maybe one out to get that inning, he, so the the player on deck was the guy who would become the national player of the year. And I think the first, that might've been wrong, but he was definitely the number one draft pick. I mean, if I'm probably giving this away mm-hmm. of who these teams are, but. What the were num- their team colors? <laughs> Don't worry about it. But anyway, <laughs> um, the number one player in the country was on deck and he walked with two outs and no one on base and a one run lead. He walked, no, a two run lead. Either way, it doesn't matter. He walks a guy on a three, two slider to get to to bring up the number one player in the country essentially. Mm-hmm. And I said, what is this guy going to do if you throw him a 3-2 fastball? At worst he's going to tie the game. Chances are he's not going to do that, right? He's I mean, this wasn't like Johnny Power where he hit 25 jacks in the season. And if anything, mm-hmm. the guy on deck was Johnny Power. So, mm-hmm. it just didn't make sense to me. I'm like, you trust your fastball that little, you throw 94 number 1 from the left side and you trust your fastball that little that you're going to throw a 3-2 slider and risk walking this guy to bring up the guy who can tie the ball game with one swing, who's one of the best players in the country. And it just like blew my mind. And it just doesn't matter whether you're, whether you believe in your slider or whether you're slider, every team, the probability and the odds, they just don't match up. That doesn't make any sense. Like you take your chance with your fastball. And so then the next inning, this same kid throws like 75% sliders. And it came down to a point where with, they had the tying run on base and if you'd watched the previous five hitters, if you're, you know, you're on deck, you're the the, the hitting team, you, you got to watch this guy and you're like, look, he's throwing at least four sliders to every hitter. So if I'm smart and I've got some pop and we're struggling to string runs together, I'm going to sit on a slider. I'm going to wait yep. for him to throw me a slider. I'm going to look in that little, hun- that little tunnel where it starts at my catcher's shoulder. I'm going to watch and see if I can pick out a slider that starts there that's going to break into the middle of the plate and I'm going to take him deep. I'm going to swing out of my shoes and I'm going to take them deep because guys in pro ball do that. They, they pick up patterns. I remember having conversations with, with them about this where, you know, I had a teammate who got released. 
signed with a different team. I ended up pitching against him at the very end. And he watched me as I was throwing a lot of changeups one day because I had thrown like three or three days in a row or something. I threw like seven innings in my last seven days of the season that year. And I was like kind of wounded. Like I was just exhausted. I could tell he didn't have anything on my fastball left. So I was throwing a lot of changeups to try to like compensate like that happens. And he was watching on deck and I ended up getting him one, two. I threw him a pretty dirty changeup that broke about a ball or two off the plate and below his kneecap. But he stayed on it just long mm-hmm. enough because he knew that I was throwing a ton of changeups and he was watching and he's seeing how I was trying to put guys away with changeups. So when I threw him that really good one, he stayed on it long enough, broke his bat, hit a soft line drive up the middle. The next day I talked to him and I saw him like, how did you stay on that pitch? Like, that was a pretty good pitch. He's like, bro, it was easy. I knew you were going to throw it. He's like, I was watching you. You threw a ton. As soon as you got ahead of guys, you're throwing a ton of changeups. I'm like, yeah, you're smart, aren't you? He's like, yeah. So <laughs> I just watched that college world series, you know, having that conversation under my belt. And I was like, why is no one in the dugout of this hitting team sitting on a slider from this kid? Like, you're absolutely guaranteed to get at least three sliders per bat. He threw at least three to every player. And it just it just didn't make sense that like no one was connecting the dots on the bench to change this hitter's approach. And these were some of the best teams in the country, obviously. And I just was watching. I was just it was I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like I just don't get it. You know, and and what happened, the way the College World Series ended that year, kid took a called strike three slider right down the middle. And it was like the fourth or fifth slider he saw that at bat. I'm like, that was exactly your pitch. And you took it, like you were <laughs> you were surprised that he threw that to you? It just I, I don't know, it just blew my mind. Yeah, it's crazy. There's a difference between pitching backwards and then just throwing a ton of like throwing all sliders. Like you can, yeah, yeah, pitch backwards and then you know finish a guy with a fastball because he's going to be off of it. But it, it is pretty insane how you know you can just rip sliders in there and you know some sometimes the adjustments never made and there's something behind that I guess. Yeah, I don't know. But one of the things that one of the things that I was thinking about is like. I got a lot smarter, I feel like, in pro baseball, like later on in my career as my job as it became more I became more acutely aware, I think, that my job was on the line every day. I mean, that was when I learned to hold runners because when I first started getting like good situations as a reliever, I became very aware like I'm like, man, if I, you know, the first guy gets on base, if I let him steal second, I'm just a blooper away from blowing the game, you know, blowing the game or blowing the lead. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so and then, you know, like, if, hey, if I blow a couple games in a row or just in a couple of weeks, I'm going to get released or I'm just going to lose this role and I'm, or I'm going to lose my job eventually. Right. So when there was like a really strong cause and effect, I feel like that forces learning, you know, a lot faster because you're like, I have to do this right now or the thing that I love goes away. Um, yeah. and, but in college, I mean, obviously at big programs, if you don't produce, like you might be gone, you might never see the field again. Mm-hmm. So that, obviously that happens, but at lesser schools, like in college for me, I felt like I was kind of like nestled in and I was going to be there for four years and I'd get my chances and I did. But do you, I mean, do you feel like kids have less accountability in college where they can kind of cruise through there knowing that they're going to be wearing the same jersey for four four seasons? It's different. Like it, if you're on scholarship, yeah, you know, you're you got four years to do it. But let's say first couple of weeks, we have a ton of pitching depth and, you know, you get your chance and you don't really throw well. There's not really that many games to where you're going to get an opportunity again, especially if you have other guys waiting, you know, to pitch. So it happens really quick, unfortunately. So it's you kind of have your little your couple weeks in the beginning of the year, and and obviously we evaluate in the fall and the winter, but like you, you really just got to do it in the game. So I guess having four years, yeah, you're you're safe pretty much for four years. But if you want to pitch in the season, like you kind of got to do it pretty quickly in the first, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. If, you know, we're going to keep going back to you because there's not a lot of innings, especially in, there's there's 56 games, but there's really not, you know, a lot of innings because you're not playing every day. It's you, know, you got a couple of days off in between weekend series and midweek games. Yeah, no, that, makes, that I, makes sense. Um, I don't want to say they're not really a, accountable. I don't know if that's a word that you used. Yeah, that wouldn't be fair. Uh, but it's not like you're losing your jobs, your job after a few bad outings in college. It is different. You know, you're a part of the program. You can help. In other ways, if you know if you're not pitching well, yeah, you're, you might not pitch in the game, but you're still a part of the program. It's not like, hey, go get a you know a desk job like it is in professional baseball. Like you're there for four years, and so you can contribute in other ways. Yeah. So speaking of learning, um, we both kind of remarked. So when you and I just kind of fill people in, when you and I met, we kind of realized that we were kind of like the same pitcher, right? Obviously, I'm like mm-hmm. way taller, and I throw harder than you. My curveball sharper, like all that stuff. Because you're like. You know, we're really yeah, similar. I'm way better looking, but it's fine. Like, 
My face is way better looking than yours. I have a better. Uh, <laughs> no, I won't get into that. I have better. I'm. You know, I know you hit <laughs> a little bit, but how did how did you get recruited having so little power? Because I know you hit two way at, at UConn, but <laughs> I mean, did they give you like a waiver? Were you just like a big bunting guy or what? I just hit the ball over the damn fence, and then I got a scholarship. That's how I did it. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> but uh, so we had a lot of conversations about spin rate and. Not a lot of people are still talking about that, at least in the playing ranks, right? I don't know that, that many players understand why their arsenal does what it does, so why their fastball. But, you know, I just remember that early in my career, you know, and, and, and neither of us were flamethrowers. You know, I got up to 94. I'd sit like 91, 94, usually at my, my prime when I wasn't, you know, nursing some injury, which was most of the time. But I would still throw like 91 mile power fastballs by a guy on 3 1. I'm like, I don't feel like I throw hard enough for you to have missed that one, right? And I know you've had similar experiences. And I think as I started to read about spin rate and all these other things, I started to kind of connect the dots where you, this hitter has no business swinging underneath my fastball on 2-0 or on 3-1. So what's going on, right? And so did you have that revelation at one point where you're like, I might be, a, my ball might do different things than the normal pitcher? Definitely. I think uh, I, when we when we were playing... It was kind of before, makes me makes it sound old, like old men, but it was kind of right before Trackman and Rapsido and all that. So it was, back then it was just called, oh, like he throws an invisible and no one really knew what it was. Like, yeah, or, oh, or life. Like 90. Yeah, you got yeah, light life on your pitch, yeah. Yeah, and I would, I would always say, yeah, because when I had sort of that revelation, it was like, yeah, my ball's as straight as an arrow and it doesn't sink at all and like you know you're taught you should sink the ball get ground balls and but everyone does that so you gotta so every hitter is used to seeing it and my ball was straight as an arrow so it appeared to have rise and, and this was all before the whole uh, spin rate stuff started so i think i was about three years too early to the party um, and it was just, I was just kind of like a weird pitcher that threw 90 miles an hour and just like had a weird fastball that people couldn't hit. And now that's kind of like a commodity. So basically what I'm saying is I would be in the big leagues if I was like <laughs> three years younger. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So for, um, for the listeners at home, if you're not, a, if you're not familiar with spin rate on the fastball, this is pretty much what happens. So most people are on the bell curve. All right. So if, if we say that average spin which I think this is about right, is like 2,200 RPM, somewhere in that range. If your fastball spins at 2,200 revolutions per minute, you're going to be in the middle of the bell curve, which means when a hitter's watching your fastball fly in towards the plate, his brain does physics where he knows that it's going to basically drop a little bit against gravity over the course of that flight. You know, it might be like four inches or five inches or whatever, a vertical break. So that's which, you know, the ball can't, completely resist gravity right it can't rise either we've you know physics has proven that um so everyone's fastball drops a little bit that's called vertical break but when you have higher spin rate so higher than average so you're on the higher end of the bell curve your fastball over the the course of the of its flight is going to drop a little bit less so if the normal fastball for example just throwing a number out there drops five inches the hitter's brain gets used to calculating for that right so if you have pitcher a that throws 90 miles per hour and has like average spin his fastball drops five inches. Kevin Vance pitches. He throws the same 90 miles per hour. He has really high spin. His fastball only drops three inches. So now when a hitter sees his fastball come in, he swings kind of calculating where he thinks his barrel needs to go. And because your fastball doesn't drop as much, he puts his barrel in a spot and he's underneath the ball and he pops it up. And he's like, wait, why didn't I hit that one well? Right? There's like a lot of perplexed swings that I got in my career and you kind of got the same, right? Yeah, definitely like weird check swings. The the weird thing about it is, and it, you know, guys are starting to figure it out. When you, if you're a high spin rate guy and you throw down in the zone, you're going to get hit a little bit more than if you're up. So that's, that was a problem for me. Like it was a weird, you know, all my pitching coaches would kind of tell me, you know, be down in the zone, which isn't a bad thought at all whatsoever. Like that's, you need to be thinking down to get the ball down and throw strikes. But I would get hit a lot when I would throw pitches at the knees, and then I would very, very rarely get hit when I was throwing at the belt. Um, they would just kind of foul it off or swing it and miss. But there is a risk in that pitching up event. Occasionally, you'll give up a really, really long home run. But 
it's much more rare to get hit up in the zone with a high spin rate than you will down. And when you throw down in the zone, a lot of the times you'll get takes, you'll get called strikes looking because they think, again, like you said, it's going to drop five inches and they think in their mind, all right, this pitch is going to drop out of the zone. It stays in the zone. And that's the effectiveness of a high spin rate fastball when it's down is it's usually taken for a strike because they think it's going to be out of the strike zone. Yeah, and that was my same experience. And I remember in spring training when you throw against your own hitters, you know, I'd get a bunch of feedback and guys be like, man, dude, your fastball's weird. Like, I keep thinking it's a ball. I think keep thinking it's going to hit the dirt, and then it just stays up, which is exactly like, well, literally exactly what you just described, which is why our conversations I thought were kind of funny because it's almost like we were like long lost uh, spin brothers or something. But, but yeah, I, <laughs> I remember giving up all, like, all the hard hits. I, I had a great season a couple years ago and all the hard hits I gave up, the home runs, the doubles, the missile line drives, they're always down the zone. And it was just consistent where even if you didn't know anything about spin rate, it was like a cause and effect where I'm like, man, every time I throw the ball down, I stink and they just smoke it. (laughs) But when we're talking about down there, that's not what you were just describing, you know, down, down, obviously every pitcher's goal. And I don't think enough amateur pitchers realize this either. Your goal is to be at the bottom of the knee, like the very bottom Mm -hmm. layer of the strike zone. So if you're down there, yeah, they'll take it. But that's like, it's hard to do. It's hard to throw it at the very bottom of the kneecap. Anything yeah. above that, though, it like rises up into their barrel. So with an average spin rate guy, he might beat that into the ground with a guy with low spin. So we haven't covered that yet. So when you have lower spin, mm-hmm. the ball sinks, right? So when you're a sinker baller, the better sinker you have means you have less spin. So your goal is to throw as hard yep. as possible with lower spin. And then, again, it's not resisting gravity as well, and so it just sinks more over the course of that flight. So when you're down in the zone with low spin, then you're getting tons and tons of guys doing the opposite effect, which is they think they can hit it square and they beat it right into the ground and then, you know, double play, double play, double play. And we've seen those guys too, right? Our teammate, Mark Blackmar had a lot of sink and he just got, he, you know, if he ever got in trouble, it was just like bottom of the zone, double play, double play, double play. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what it was basically throwing like knuckleballs at their sinkers. They wouldn't, they wouldn't spin at all. You could tell you just, he doesn't spin the ball. Well, and it's, you can't even really teach it. I don't think. I guess the goal of all that is is to do what is to pay is to understand what you do well and what your ball does and then how to maximize it right so for you as a high spin rate pitcher what did you do I mean and you kind of touched on it a second ago but what was your what was your pitching approach knowing that your ball spun faster than average how did you capitalize on that like what did you avoid what did you do okay yeah so if I could go through like a perfect at bat I would want to you know get ahead at the knees for a called strike take. And then I would throw a couple fastballs, let her high, and then throw my curveball. And that would appear to be a fastball up, and then it would usually break in for a called strike taken a lot of the times. Um, so basically, fastballs up and hammers down. It's kind of That was kind of my bread and butter throwing, you know, show me fastballs for strikes down, but then, you know, trying to live at the belt or above and just having them fouled off and then throw a curveball so kind of not the usual um you know sinker slider that you see a lot more of the you know use my curveball up and down um beat guys pitching up and down as opposed to side to side yeah Um, so when you have guys who seem like they're lower spin right players what do you advise them to do live at the knees use their sink to get ground balls um and that's wasn't that's the cool part about pitching is I wasn't like that whatsoever and our freshman this year Vitaly Jangles who is uh he'll probably listen to this podcast what's up V uh (laughs) he's kind of a low spin rate guy he's got a sinker at times he has a really really good sinker titanic sinker as they call it and he just needs to be down and he made a living getting ground balls um so as a coach that was cool for me because I haven't I never pitched like that, but just seeing other guys who can do that and, you know, just knowing no two guys are the same. Um, so just keeping his sinker down, um, using a slider for a strike, just being down, he made a living off of that. And so that's the difference, really. You have to be down to the sinker. You can't really pitch up in the zone. Like, uh, you know, a lot of guys can put guys away up. You know, if you throw a curveball, you can put a guy away up. But if you're a low spin rate guy, that's a pretty risky pitch. Even if you're, you know, switch into a force seam to go up, it might not be as effective because you're sort of a sinker baller and it's going to possibly sink from the top of the zone into, you know, kind of the hitting zone. 
So that's a little more dangerous pitch. So you're going to have to finish guys down um, or in off the plate or away off the plate as opposed to above and below the strike zone. Yeah, and that all matches up with uh, are you feel, how familiar are you with the, the pitch tunneling theory? Oh, huge. I mean, that's I'm not really sure of the official theory, but just seeing I call it um, like windows, just seeing what the same window that the pit, that the hitter's seeing. We talk about you know if you if you throw a pitch a fastball at a guy's head, like you should probably throw a curveball the next pitch because that's gonna yeah. he's gonna think it's gonna hit him in the head. It's gonna be frightening. Like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My favorite, actually, my favorite sequence. Um, just giving away all my information to opposing teams that are probably gonna scout me on this. But uh, left, if you're a right-handed pitcher or lefty, fastball changeup is kind of like the thing to do. Is you know you use right on left changeup as instead of you know using your slide or, or your breaking ball because it'll you know come up you know, go right into his barrel. But so if you're facing a lefty and you go you know fastball away changeup, uh, another changeup. So you throw a bad changeup up and away, and you're kind of battling late at bat, like long at bat. You know lefty hasn't seen your curveball yet and you've thrown a fastball up and away, really not on purpose, and you throw a curveball, I think 90% of the time he'll, he'll take it if you call throw it for a strike, and that's because of the window or the tunnels that he's seen each pitch from. So he's seen your fastball, he's seen your changeup, so his mind is locked in on you know, breaks that are all breaking away from him usually, um, you know, like a, a running fastball or a changeup that usually is breaking away from him, and then he sees you know, a fastball up and away. So then when you throw a curveball right away, he's thinking, okay, that's either a changeup or a fastball way outside, and then it breaks in the last second and he takes it for a called strike. That's probably my favorite sequence. Just to kind of saving a breaking ball for, you know, to to set up through windows of, you know, what the the lefty is seeing, and then you flip in a breaking ball and he kind of he gives up on it because you've set him up by using different tunnels or using the same tunnel. Did that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does. I uh, and I'm on board. I mean, this is something that's been intuitively around forever, right? Like mm-hmm. guys who throw fastball, curveball, like Barry Zito is the classic example. He made a living throwing like 87 at the letters, and then just his hammer curve for a called strike or down the zone, mm-hmm. right? But the thing where I kind of get off board with pitch tunneling is, I feel like it's one of those theories that sounds so good, and that people just want to go. And I think this is where people that don't haven't played at a high level, they lack context and they just jump on, oh yeah, you got to go off the tunnels and this and that. And I mean, the thing is, realistically, you're not going to pitch to that. I think, and I wrote an article about this recently, I think really you're pitching to expected outcome, right? So when you throw a certain pitch, mm-hmm. you're expecting that this is what I can, I anticipate is going to happen. So even if you throw, and, and at, with these pitches actually going through the window or through that tunnel, if you want to throw a curveball for a called strike, you and I both know that the curveball for a called strike is it matches with the fastball that is a little bit above the letters, right? Because mm-hmm. that's about where you have to start it. So when you're oh, we're o two, you don't want to throw a curveball that breaks in the middle of the plate. That's how you get hurt, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Sometimes you can freeze a guy depending on the sequence, like just like you talked about. But in general, when it's o two, we're trying to bury that curveball, right, or bounce yeah. it on the point of the plate. So if you're high fastball, high fastball, high fastball, the the curveball that you bounce on the point of the plate doesn't go in that tunnel. Like the curveball that goes in that tunnel goes in the middle of the strike zone. Now, just because you've thrown it yeah. earlier, it, they might still have it in their mind, but it's not really going to go. It's not like pitch A is not going to look like pitch B when it's high fastball and then bounce curveball. People just kind of conflate yeah. like all of it. They think that every high pitch looks like every curveball, but they don't. So, you know, and, and, and that point you could say, well, which is the better one to do? Do I go high fastball and then throw a curveball into that same tunnel where they're going to look exactly the same for a little while, but it's going to break in the middle of the plate? Or do I bounce it knowing that it's not quite going to be high enough to be in that tunnel? It's going to be actually a pretty decent amount lower. I mean, I think both of us, for the most part, we're going to bounce that curveball, right? Because if you hang mm-hmm. it and he's looking and he sees it, he's going to hit it pretty hard. And beyond that, obviously, pitchers miss their spots all the time. So I, I think the way you kind of described it makes sense where they've seen all these different tunnels at one point or another. And then they kind of think that, oh, maybe that pitch is this. And I think it works more on the righty-lefty thing. Like, that's a, a pretty good insight that you just had, which is that mm-hmm. they're not going to see many breaking balls. So when they see that high-and-away fastball and they haven't seen a curveball, they, the only thing they've ever seen is high-and-away fastball. So now that curveball starts high-and-away, it breaks over, and they're like, oh, well, I don't know what I was going to do with that. To me, it's not as much actionable because, I mean, 
the way I think pitchers locate breaking balls, and this was something I battled with my whole career. I mean, the way you locate anything is that you have to know where to start it, right? So when you want to throw your curveball yeah. for a strike, you don't you don't look at the mitt. And I didn't learn this till I was twenty one, and all the kids I work with, zero percent of them know how to do this. But when you when you're trying to throw your fastball for a strike, you want to hit the mitt, right? So you just throw it at the mitt, and it goes straight to the mitt. However, mm-hmm. when you throw a slider or a sinker or a curveball or a changeup, like the way I throw it, it has a lot of sink and run. You have to throw it for a starting point so that it breaks to the ending point. So if you're going to throw it for the down the middle of the plate and it breaks nine inches at a diagonal, you have to start that pitch nine inches of the diagonal from the plate, right? So that it, when you start at that spot, it breaks where you want it to end up, not where you start it. So mm-hmm. like that's the only actionable item there. So if we're talking about pitch tunneling, you know, it all comes down to do pitchers know where to start their stuff and does where they start it make sense? Because again, if you start, a, you know, a fastball, you know, a little bit up and in, if you're righty, righty, you start a fastball a little bit up and in on a guy, the only slider that then matches up with that tunnel is a slider that breaks in the middle of the plate. And like, do you want to throw that slider in the middle of the plate? Like, I don't know. Most of the time, probably not if you already have a strike. Yeah, totally makes sense. It just can't be one of those things where you're always trying to, oh, does this, did that pitch match this one? No, oh, I just threw that pitch. I missed my spot. So now I got to throw this pitch so that it matches up here. But there's there's so many locations that become trouble locations. So, you know, with the curveball, at least for me, there were three locations I tried to throw it. Called strike, so breaks down the middle. My ahead, but not super far ahead, you know, 01 or 1 and 2, it's breaking to like the bottom of the kneecap on the corner of the plate. So it's like a borderline ball strike. If they swing at that one, they're probably going to ground out or miss. And if they take it, it's a pretty risky take. They might strike out. Mm-hmm. And there's the other one, the 021, or the 12 when it's a you know specific situation with a base open where you bounce it and you're trying to bounce it on the on the plate or the point of the plate. So those are the three locations for me, but they're all pretty specific and the pitch that follows before it might not match up. So again, if I go up the ladder, the only pitch the only curveball that matches that is the curveball that breaks in the middle of the zone. And it just doesn't necessarily follow that I want to throw a curveball in a specific spot just based on the previous fastball. Yeah, and I think the you always see the, the the overlay things on TV like oh he releases it from the same release point because when you execute all those different curveballs your release point really isn't the same and your direction isn't the same I don't I really don't think hitters are good enough to where it's like oh my, he's releasing it yeah you're releasing it in the same general area but you are changing you know if you're gonna throw a curveball for a strike your direction really isn't the same as it is when you're trying to throw it when you're trying to bounce it. And I think we give hitters way too much credit when you talk about all this tunneling stuff. A lot of our guys, I talk to them about, like you have to stay really, really close and almost with your direction, you have to be towards a right-handed hitter if you're a right-handed pitcher when you're throwing a breaking ball. Mm -hmm. So you need, your direction needs to basically be like you're throwing a fastball at, you know, a righty shoulder, but you're throwing a curveball. So you're basically letting the grip do the work, but your direction is so good and you're out in front that it takes care the break takes care of your direction being at him because of the break. Um, so in terms of pitch tunneling, your body is doing completely different things. And I don't think the hitter is good enough to pick up on it. Like we have, we have a couple guys like they're, they do do different things on their breaking ball and the hitters aren't that good. I think we give them too much credit. Um, yeah, and the thing is, it's such I, a violent action, and you're like, they're not gonna be able to pick up on your arm moving so quickly in that little time and think of it as the pitch is coming. Like, we, that, we give hitters too much credit. Yeah, and I'm not sure there's a correlation because, like I said, I was doing some research into this article that I was writing, and the number one most consistent pitcher with his release point was John Lester, I think from last year. And his release point varied on average by only like 1.5 inches. But. John Lester, I mean, he's a great pitcher, obviously, but he's not like the number one pitcher in, in the majors. You know, he's like yeah. maybe like 30th in ERA, like 30th in batting average against, like something like that. So I'm not sure like the correlation is there where being your release point being absolutely identical necessarily means you're going to be successful. I'm not sure where the where the tolerance is, right? So obviously if you're like mm-hmm. off by like six inches, you know, like a little kid might be like, and that's one of the things I work with little kids on all the time. Like, hey, number one, we just need to repeat your delivery. And that's the other thing about tunneling is yeah. you see these overlay videos, which are awesome. Like they're fascinating, these little gifts where they mm. show, you know, you Darvish, all of his, all six of his pitches break out as he throws them. But that's not like tunneling to me. That's just repeating your delivery. And this is what we yeah. kind of talk with Alan Nathan in another podcast is that we don't need to call it 
hey, you need to tunnel your pitches, little Johnny. Like, you need to work on tunneling your pitches. Like, no, you just need to repeat your delivery. Because if you repeat your delivery well, every pitch is going to come out the only possible way it can come out. So your your fastball down away will never look like a curveball that breaks to the middle. It'll never look like a a slider that breaks, you know, down away. There's only so many possible outcomes when you when you repeat your delivery. So it only, you know, tunneling only comes down to the sequences that you choose, right? So we don't need to like uh-huh. teach pitchers. Like I've heard of these, you know, some of these guys like getting a hoop and trying to throw each ball down the hoop. But if you repeat your delivery, the hoop is irrelevant. Like you can't try to throw it down the same tunnel. You can only choose to throw with your, your mechanics, the mechanics that you have. And as long as you don't change the rhythm of your delivery, like you don't go faster or slower or sink in your back leg too much or fly open yeah. and you don't you know, throw it softer, which is very common with young pitchers, but not with, with, you know, pro guys. If you throw every pitch as hard as you possibly can, you finish it the same, your tempo is the same, everything is the same to any given starting fastball tunnel. Everything else is, is, is predetermined. Like your curveball, if it starts on that tunnel, can only break to one spot. Your slider can only break to one spot. Yeah. So it really just comes down to the sequence of pitches you throw. So I just think it's a kind of a misnomer as it gets like more of a, becomes more of a popular theory where like yeah like we can talk about pitch tunneling like it's cool but it's really only a sequence thing it's not a mechanical thing like no one's trying harder to do it right yeah like Clayton Kershaw isn't working on his pitch tunneling um, he just throws the ball yeah <laughs> um, and I'm glad you said about like uh, having repeatable mechanics and Clayton Kershaw for example like he he has this little hitch um, you know he lifts his glove up with his leg kind of comes down, pauses, and then goes. Um, that's where he does his tunneling, I guess, being having a repeatable delivery. And it is repeatable because he has distinct checkpoints that he gets to. Um, and I think kind of using those hitches in a way is a really cool, you know, and I think it's kind of frowned upon to have like a hitchy delivery. But in a way, Kershaw used it as a timing mechanism and it's really, really good, and it works for him having that hitch, and it makes everything look the same. And so that's where his repeatable delivery comes into account. It's not him practicing, you know, tunneling or you know, using uh, a layover video or a track man to see it. He's just repeating his delivery as best as he can, and letting the grip do the work and throwing the piss out of it. You know, every pitch, it's throw the ball as hard as you can every time. Yeah, and you know where pitch tunneling might be worked on. It's just like your sequence. So, like you said, if you're a high spin guy, it doesn't make sense to be down in the zone all the time and sequencing your pitching. You know, using the tunnels, uh, the, the high fastball to your curveball down, like that stuff makes sense. But you know, beyond that, like you said, just mechanically, it's like not really, not really a thing. Yeah. So as we kind of go from there, you know, and the last thing I kind of want to like mention, and you probably feel the same way about this as I do, but when a lot of these things come out, like for example, like the swing up thing in hitting. Everyone's like trying to debunk myths, right? So they're like, oh, people have been teaching you to swing down the ball for forever, which again, is not correct. Like no one does that. And I mean, Mm -hmm. Ted Williams debunked that, I mean, half a a century ago. But um, with with pitching, as the spin rate stuff comes out, people suddenly equate that high spin rate is good. And Mm -hmm. when you have a four seam fastball that you just need to like, Oh, pitching down the zone is overrated. And there's some data that shows for sure that that's true. That hitters don't, at least in the big leagues where pretty much all this data is from hitters in the big league hit balls down as hard as they do up. Like they have as many extra base hits on pitches down, you know, as they do up, like it's not, it's not necessarily scarier to pitch up in the zone. However, if you're a higher spin rate guy, you live up there better. If you're a low spin rate guy, you don't live up there as well. But the big thing that, that, pisses me off is people are like oh pitch up pitch up in the zone hashtag pitch up in the zone it's like no because <laughs> what people don't realize hashtag is that up's the new down yeah up is not the new down for everyone listening because <laughs> if you're ever to become an accomplished pitcher you have to learn to get behind the ball and get on top of the ball on every single pitch because otherwise your slider has no chance to be good your changeup will not be good your sinker will not sink your curveball will not be sharp and so when we're in encouraging kids to like follow this data and pitch up in the zone like oh it's okay little giant you can pitch up in the zone you can throw half your fastballs at the belt or above when it comes time for a little giant to throw a slider it's going to be garbage because fastballs up in the zone are the same release point as hanging sliders and crappy curveballs Mm -hmm. and crappy sinkers that don't sink And if you talk to a guy who throws a sinker for a living 
he'll tell you if that thing's above mid thigh, it sucks. Right. And that's just what irritates me is a lot of people just like jump on, you know, all this new data and they immediately go on the bandwagon of like, oh, it's got to be this. It's, it's got to be only A and never B. But there's just like so many, you know, and I didn't learn to pitch down the zone until I was 26. Like, I'll just be honest. I consistently <laughs> pitched up in the zone. I didn't have command down because I kind of got away with it with my curveball. But I remember the moment I was in spring training in 2014. I was in Somerset and I really wanted to make that team. It was com- I was coming back from Tommy John surgery for the second time. And I was watching, you know, in the, in the days leading up to spring training, they signed like 10 guys who'd either been in the big leagues or AAA. And I was like, oh, crap. I'm probably going to be like, I could very well be the odd man out. And as I watched some of these guys who were, all right, this guy's pitching last year. He was in the, with the Braves. This guy's pitching last year. He was in AAA. This guy's pitching. He was in the big leagues for like five years. As I'm watching them throw their bullpens on like the first day before, before me, I watched them throw like literally every pitch on, on the kneecap, like literally every pitch. And I had this like moment of dread. I was like, I can't do that. And then that <laughs> I can't do that immediately became, I have to find a way to do that right now. Like right now, like today, I'm going to throw every pitch on the bottom of the knee. And it's kind of that same thing as we talked about before, like in college, maybe I didn't have like the, the terror that if I didn't do things, the accountability that it didn't matter so much. And I wasn't, was not a good college pitcher. But at that moment, I realized that my career in large part hung on me being able to throw every fastball at the bottom of the kneecap, at least just to be, to look the same as these guys and not stick out. Because if you're throwing a bullpen mm-hmm. in front of a, a high-level coach who knows who's knows baseball, and he sees you throw every pass ball at the belt in a bullpen, he thinks you stink, right? Yeah, yeah. So I like right then I was the most fo- focused bullpen of my entire life because I was like, I will not make this team unless I throw every pitch at the kneecap, and it was the best bullpen like I'd ever had to that point. And it just like gave me like a new level of consciousness that I had to do certain things. And learning to be down the zone and what it felt like to get downhill on each pitch was just huge for me. Cause then my curveball be better. My change, was better. You're getting to the front of the ball. You're getting behind the ball. You're getting on top of the ball. And that's just like a tenant of pitching that never goes away. And so you just like can't allow kids to like go with this and like, Oh, pitch up in the zone. Little Johnny, like mm-hmm. you just can't like, it just stunts their growth. Yeah. It, and I always say a fastball glove side down is perfecting your release point. So you know, yeah, pitching up is great, but you have to be able to master a fastball glove side down. Um, for I mean, if you don't know what that means, it's if you're right-handed down and away to a righty. Because if you can master that that release point, then that makes all your other pitches that much better because you're at full extension um, on top of the ball. You know, you're not late with your arm. Everything's on time because we're usually late. So if you can really get your arm going and get that fastball glove side down, then it's going to make all your other pitches better. So that's what should be really important for young pitchers is if you can't execute a fastball down and away to a righty, if you're a right-hander, then you really shouldn't move on to anything else because you don't have a feel for your release point and you can't master your release point by getting that fastball down and away. And that should be the first thing um, that you master. And then if you master that, then everything else becomes easy. Right, because then a fastball up is, you know, you're just a little late with your arm compared to the fastball glove side down. You're just a little bit later if you want to go up, but you have to be able to get down and away first because yeah. that's the hardest one. To, that's the hardest one to do. Yeah, no, and for sure. And, and a lot of the kids that I get that come in for like a first lesson and they're anywhere between, you know, 10 and, and 18, but the kids that are throwing a breaking ball, you know, between like usually 13 and, you know, 13 and up and most of their breaking balls stink, not because they don't know how to throw a breaking ball, although that is the case with most of them too, but in large part because they just can't get to the front of the baseball. They fly open and they can't get to that down away release point that you're talking about. So none of them have the mechanics or the, the feel of what it is like to stay closed long, hold on to the pitch, get on top of it, drive it down away. And that's where the slider comes out. So I see these just slurvy, crappy sliders because these kids just can't get to that release point. And once you learn to get down away, mm-hmm. like you said, your slider will break the way you want it to break, but it all starts there. And it's just a skill that, yeah, until they learn to do that, to stay closed, to follow their front side towards the plate, all that stuff, they just can't. So it all just, it's, you know, it's funny how mechanics still play into breaking ball break. It's not just the execution of the pitch with your hand and the grip and all that stuff. I mean, usually um, pretty much everyone knows the correct grips 
And a curveball grip is the mm-hmm. same as a slider grip. You just hold on a different spot of the ball. And obviously yeah. your hand does a different thing. But like the grip, and I tell kids all the time, like Adam Wainwright has the same curveball grip as you. So does Clayton Kershaw. Like there's nothing different. It's just the way they throw it and their mechanics and their finish, like so many other things that aren't the grip, right? Yeah. And there's um, what's called, what I call a fixed pitch. Like you got to understand what your fixed pitch is. So, and it's usually a fastball down and away. Everyone kind of has it, even Clayton Kershaw and Wainwright. Like if their their curveballs not, not working, they can, in a sense, sometimes I'm sure they do find their curveball by throwing a fastball down and away. Or a lot of the times it's a changeup because a changeup you have to be out in front and release it out in front, and that's what your quote unquote fixed pitch. So if you're struggling, you need to throw a pitch that would get your arm slot back to where it needs to be, which is a lot of the times a change up or a fastball down and away that'll get you back on track for your curveball. And that just adds on to, to what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I just remember for me when I was off, I was throwing the ball into the ground and I would almost never throw fastballs into the dirt. And that was again, kind of just like a sign that I had high spin. But if I was right and I was like on time, my mechanics were good. I was normal. Me, I would never hit the dirt with a fastball. I would, I would miss up, but I would never, it just like, it was so hard for me to throw a ball to hit the hit the ground because I'd have to because it kind of like almost rose. I mean, it didn't rise like that's not physically possible. <laughs> but compared to other people, it seemed like it rise. So for me to hit the dirt with it, I'd have to almost like throw it at the front of the plate. And if you saw me pitch and I was throwing ball fastballs in the dirt, you're like, oh crap! Like blue, it's not right. And I knew it. I had to find myself. <laughs> yeah, I've seen but, it a couple times. Yeah, no, I sucked <laughs> when we played together. I was, I was brutal, but. uh <laughs> But yeah, it's just weird how everyone struggles in a different and almost like a unique way. So like any given pitcher is kind of like a snowflake where they have a pattern, like what they look like when they're good, how they pitch when they're good and what they look like when they're not good. So like, what did you, what, what was a a sign for you when you were like off? I will say if I wasn't, if I was like sinking the ball, if my ball was sinking, I was in trouble. Um, And I don't know where this, I'm kind of like beating a dead horse with this whole spin rate thing, but like if I was ever sinking it, I would. It wasn't a good sign. Uh, something was off. Um, if I didn't have my curveball, I was I was pretty much screwed uh, because it it played so much with my fastball. Like because there's there's days where yeah you don't have your curveball because it's such a delicate pitch to where it's it's different every day. Some days it's just completely non-existent, and those were the worst days for me when I, I just didn't have it because I you know would rely just on my fastball and better hitters they would pick up on that and just eliminate my curveball um and then you know after they saw a couple fastballs it was pretty easy to hit you know at 90 miles an hour with with nothing else so I guess in a way I kind of live and died off my curveball whether or not I had it that day which is you know not ideal that's why other people have you know a third pitch (laughs) but uh, I was just competing my ass off with two yeah, and I think that's the bigger thing as a reliever where you have three pitches, but really just so that one of them becomes the star of any given night. I had three pitches. I had a fastball, curveball, changeup. Even though my fastball, curveball were the go-to, just some nights my curveball stunk. And really, I, looking back on it being objective, like I just never had good command of my curveball at the pro level. So really, I just threw it, and I hoped I could throw it for a strike, and then I just lived and died by my fastball. But some nights I wouldn't have my curveball at all, and I'd throw a changeup. like, oh, the changeup looks good, so let's just go with that. And other nights, you know, it was just cur- curveball. But, you know, in a, in a, as a reliever, you're going to throw, on average, hopefully 14 pitches an inning. So mm-hmm. eight of those are going to be fastballs. So what are the other six going to be, right? And so, you got to be able to, when on the days where you don't have it, for me, it was, all right, I, I don't really have this for a strike, so let's just bury it every time. Yeah. Like, you're gonna, you, gotta, you have to throw it, so you got to use it as, you know, that curveball that hopefully they think is a fastball and then bounces, maybe you'll get a swing. Or just throw it down so you don't get hurt by throwing a hanger. Just throw it down so they see it, they know it's there, they respect it, and then just get guys out of their fastball. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so one of the things that's that's weird to me is when I work with young kids, no one, I've almost never seen a 13 year old that throws a breaking ball that throws a slider. So it's it's weird that I feel like every kid learns to pitch, and the first breaking ball they throw is a curveball. It's like the classic pitch, but as uh, you get into it sounds pro- way cooler, like oh, it curves. Yeah, I want to throw a curveball, but 
A, they all stink. Like ev- literally every kid that I see that comes in with a curveball or any breaking ball, it just it just stinks because they just like don't understand how to throw it, and that's okay. I mean, it's not an easy thing to understand, and so we kind of talk about the physics of it and what they're trying to do to the ball, like how they're trying to get it to spin. But regardless, my point is everyone seems to learn a curveball. Like that's their first one. And But everyone in college and the pro ball, they seem to throw sliders. And the curveball is definitely the, the minority as far as breaking balls. A, because it's really hard to throw for a strike in the tiny little shoebox strike zone in pro baseball. But, I mean, do you, do you have that same kind of experience? I mean, do you feel like most guys throw sliders as opposed to curveballs at higher levels? Yeah, definitely. That is really weird that kids, you know, they're throwing curveballs at first. And then it's basically all sliders in college. Yeah, I feel like they're and, renting and it almost. You're right. It's, yeah, it, I think it's because it's really easy to teach. Um, and it's really easy to throw for a strike. It's almost like you're throwing a fastball in terms of the feel for it and how quickly you can pick up on it and, you know, just flip it in there for a strike. So I think the idea that it's really, really easy to throw for a strike and it's really easy to teach, that's probably why, I guess. I think they probably, they start throwing the curveball and realize that it's not very good and then they scrap it by the time they get to a a higher level like college. Um, But I think... It really is a dying pitch. It's kind of making a comeback now. Yeah, I but, just read an article about that actually, which is kind of weird. Yeah, Sports Illustrated, right? Was that yeah. the? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I read that. That was cool. How some pitchers are kind of starting to use it as their primary pitch. You know, like Rich Hill and Kershaw, a couple other guys are just throwing it because it moves so much and it's effective. It's basically their primary pitch. They've thrown it for their whole lives, like you said. It's a really, really hard pitch to pick up so you kind of have to be throwing it for a long time so i think you know all the, the these kids that you're talking about that start throwing sliders are kind of doing a disservice if you know if they can, can continue to throw it i think it's more effective than a slider um but it, it's kind of a you know give and take situation where do you want to put in the time to learn this pitch that's much harder to do or do you it's do you want to take the easy way out and throw a slider um, that's kind of the way I look at it. <laughs> yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think the way it happens is, is, is what you said is that kids learn a curveball, and I, and I see it and I teach kids for the first time, a curveball or a breaking ball when they're 15, when they're a freshman. So if they're a lower arm slot guy, or they have a really like tight spin on their fastball, we'll tinker with a curveball and a slider. If they're higher over the top and I'll, you know, I'll ask them, we'll, we'll kind of throw both and see which one looks better. But then the goal is like, Hey, we can't, we can't just like go back and forth. You know, just like if you have mm-hmm. 10 kids, you don't get to spend as much quality time with each of them, right? If you're the Brady Bunch. So let's nurture one of these pitches because good college pitchers have three pitches. Good pro mm-hmm. pitchers have three pitches. And then they add a fourth later when they're like 30. So let's nurture one of them. Up. Yeah, but we got, yeah. That's when I started adding my cutter when I was washed up. But uh, <laughs> when I just don't think kids understand the process um, because I've seen it that it takes six months for it even to be like serviceable. That at first they just like can't get their hands to the front of the ball. They don't understand how to spin it. It takes time. The more they just throw it, the more it starts to just materialize on its own. But like you said, I think college is decision time. So if you're a kid who's going to play college baseball, A, you're going to throw harder than average. So you're going to get hitters out and be successful with your fastball. And even if your curveball is mediocre or crappy, when you throw harder than average and you throw an okay high school curveball, then you're going to, you know, you'll get to the next level or whatever. But then when you get to, you know, college baseball, hey, guess what? That curveball that you got high school hitters out with, it kind of sucks, so we're going to need to make a decision. So at this point, you've been throwing that curveball your whole life, and it's not great. So do we try mm-hmm. to revamp how you throw it, or is this just kind of like that old jalopy of a car that we just kind of just need to scrap out and start fresh? And that's what I think probably happens. Like If you don't have a hammer curveball by the time you show up at college, it's probably just like, look, it wasn't gonna, if it was going to happen, it was going to happen by now, right? And it hasn't happened so let's move on and teach you a different one. So I think it's kind of that thing. And I just think, I mean, based on what I've seen with tons and tons of young pitchers in high school, they just, most of them just don't have a, a college quality breaking ball. As hard as we try, they just don't. And I think the slider is probably going to be a little more forgiving and maybe they have a better chance. Because if they don't get to the front of the baseball, which is where you get that good spin axis, you know, the 12-6 spin or the 1-7 spin, which for those mm-hmm. who don't know what spin axis is, that's crucial. We want the ball spinning with like clean kind of pure spin about one axis. So whether it's 12-6 or 1-7, doesn't really matter, but it needs to be very clean. So when you mix in kind of side spin with that top spin, 
then the pitch starts to get sloppy and it doesn't break as well. So if you can't get to the front of the ball, the slider doesn't, you don't have to get to the front of the slider, right? Not all the yeah. way to the front. So it, it's a little more forgiving in that sense where the slider is a mixture of bullet spin, which you don't want pure bullet spin because what does a bullet do? It flies straight and a little bit of forward spin. So you mix the two together and you get a sharp late kind of breaking slider that looks like a fastball longer because it's faster. Right. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's a weird phenomenon and I regret it because you and I are both curveball guys and the curveball is an awesome pitch and you know, Kevin Vance is super nasty, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, yeah, I kind of, I feel it was kind of throughout both Parker's probably it was like almost heartbreaking. It was like, why do I throw a curveball at times? Cause it's, it is harder. Um, so I, I, there were times where I was jealous of the, the slider throwers. Um, I was like, damn, I wish I could have a pitch that I could throw for a strike, like whenever I wanted all the time. It might not have been that good, but it was just a little wrinkle that I could throw in there at all times. Um, so yeah. I, I do, I get it. I get it. It's like, it's like the curveball is less, it has less swingable tunnels. So we kind of go back to tunnels. Like, and it, I think the big litmus test is kind of 3 2. You can throw a 3 2 slider all day. If you throw a crappy one, they're still looking fastball, so they still might roll over it. If you throw a great one, they might swing and miss at it. But the slider seems to stay in the strike zone longer, which, again, can be a blessing and a curse if you're throwing cement mixers. But with the curveball 3-2, if you don't throw it four called strike, you're screwed, right? Like almost all the time. If you throw a great one that breaks into the dirt, they take it. And if you throw one that's anywhere else, they kind of freeze because they're looking fastball, and they're like, oh, fastball up or oh, and they just freeze. So if you don't hit the catcher's mid exactly in the middle of the zone, and the umpire freezes too on 3-2. So like yeah. for me that that always kind of like summed up how the curveball is is at times especially when you have a good one you get like screwed by it being good because you surprise people and then they take it and then maybe it's borderline and it's a ball and you're like damn it yep. like just swing at that dude exactly. what's wrong with you but yeah I just let's like, go with that let's go with that for the listeners me and me and Dan curveballs were too good so that's why we didn't make it <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> that's a very rosy way of putting it yeah I'm just old and disgruntled that my curveball is too filthy. That's why guys didn't swing it. But that is a that is a thing sometimes when you just you just like freeze a guy and it's like, eh. And it's not so much freezing it that it's that it's necessarily like sharper breaking. I mean, obviously sometimes it is, but sometimes because of it's so it looks so far out of the strike zone to start that they just give up on it easy, right? It's kinda of like more like giving up on it a kind of freeze where like, oh that's a ball, oh crap, and then it's a strike. And mm-hmm. or if it's not a strike, then they just walk. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just kind yep. of frustrating, but you know, and little kids just like don't want to learn. I mean, I guess they would want to learn sliders, but it just seems like it's also. I know there's still a stigma out there that sliders are worse for your arm, and I don't know. It's it seems like a stigmatized yeah. pitch where it's a little scarier. But everyone throws a curveball, so um, they're both. Research has shown both to be safer actually than the fastball as far as like arm, you know, arm stress. Of course, with that is the caveat that kids that throw more breaking balls also report more pain. So it's not to say that your young son should throw lots and lots of curveballs and sliders because they're less stressful in the arm because that's not the case either. I mean, really, I'm sure you feel the same way that kids need to learn to pitch with their location and their change up first. And then when you add the breaking ball in to that, then they're going to be money because it's just adding, giving them a new tool. It's like learning to fist fight and then suddenly you get a knife. You're like, oh, this is going to be be easy now. (laughs) You can get a lot of people out by just throwing fastballs on both sides of the plate. Yeah, so absolutely. That's gonna be, it's gonna be important. The first thing. All right, so we're gonna kind of start wrapping up here. We've had a you know a lot of talk about the higher level stuff in pitching, you know, spin rate, all that. And with all this, there's so much old school knowledge, right? That's out there. That's not necessarily wrong, but it's also maybe getting left behind. And then there's also a ton of new stuff, which is led by a some really smart baseball guys and also a lot of kind of stats guys. So. I don't know. What do you think about the balance people are striking between new thought and old thought? <laughs> I think, okay, so you really need, we can't really leave both sides behind. I feel like there's like a beef right now between old school and new school. It's like Tupac and Biggie, like old school, new school. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. But there's a common ground in the middle that I think baseball needs to reach. The baseball nerds really know what they're talking about. But at the same time, you know, the baseball traditionalists also know what they're talking about. So and I, but when I say nerd, I don't mean that in a bad way. I think uh, being a nerd is a compliment after high school. So to all the nerds out there, 
like Mike Reinold, <laughs> I love you. Um, I, I say that as a uh, term of endearment. Um, we can't really, we can't make fun of the towel drill because I think, you know, the towel drill is, it's kind of, it's cool. Like it's something in your hand to work on your mechanics. Is it going to you know, increase your arm speed or make you throw harder? No, but it, it's something in your hand that is like an old school drill. You know, that makes sense. You got to have a repeatable delivery and yeah, it feels kind of good to have a towel in your hand. And, but at the same time, you know, we can't have people, you know, pretend like they still don't know what Twitter is just finding, you know, bridging the gap between baseball nerds and, you know, baseball traditionalists, old school, there's a common ground. That's the sweet spot, pun intended. Yeah. So do you think, you have, what ideas do you have to kind of find that balance? Because I, I totally agree with that. I think there's a disconnect where baseball guys in the clubhouse, they seem to like distrust the stats guys and for, you know, mm-hmm. not for good reason, but they don't, they don't know. They haven't been on the mound, right? They don't, I've heard someone say that like, Oh, pitching isn't mental. It's like, dude, you yes. have no idea if you've never, if you're saying that, like you've, you're just proving how little you know about pitching if you're saying that because it's incredibly yes. mental. But on the other side, there's guys who say, oh, you got to pitch down or you don't get hurt down. But you do get hurt down. And stats have shown that, that, you know, you get that big leaders hit balls down the zone as hard as they do up in the zone. So there's there's good knowledge on both sides. So, like, what do you think? How, how do we actually bridge that gap? Whew. I think you I think you just kind of got to question everything objectively. Um it's that's a tough question i mean it's you just kind of have to have a feel and not you know blindly follow program a you know question program a and you know see what program b is doing and you know actually think objectively and um at the same time you know you have all these stats but it it definitely pitching is mental but there's you know there's no stat for how much balls a guy has (laughs) there should be a stat for like this guy has huge balls on the mound, um, but there isn't. So it's just kind of, you got to have a feel and take the data, use it. But at the same time, you know, under, listen to everybody. Don't just ignore people for, you know, if they're not a sabermetrics guy, you know, don't ignore them, you know, listen to what they have to say and think through it objectively and kind of question everything and, you know, formulate, I guess, your own opinions and, you know, through the data and through, you know, the opinions i guess i think it's just you gotta have a feel and take from both sides and that's really the only way to do it i don't think there's any special formula yeah i think it just comes down to education and people gotta i I think and again i mean you're in a major league organization i i never was i was a career indie guy but there's probably just needs to be a liaison where more baseball guys have they start to learn all about sabermetrics and spin rate and stat cast data all that stuff and they just have to educate their peers you're like hey guys i pitched at a high level and I'm working with the front office to, you know, bring the data that our stats guys have to you so you guys can make sense of it and become better pitchers, right? Because I think that's everyone's goal. Right now, it seems like most of it's just used for scouting, which it makes a ton of sense to use all this data for scouting. Like you have, a, you know, two high school picks or high school potential draft picks, both throw 95 miles per hour, both throw a four-seamer. One guy's four-seamer has crazy high spin. The other guy has average spin. You know, who's a little bit better? Uh-huh. Guy with a high spin, right? That's stuff that we, didn't, we couldn't quantify earlier. Um, but there, like I said, there's still just this distrust. And I think, I think A, building trust is is difficult. And people just have to understand that, you know, motives are the same. And I know you, you were privy to the, the Phelan Lentini Fund from last year, where I was reading <laughs> that book um, by Sam Miller and Ben Lindbergh uh, titled The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Phelan was the villain of that story, unfortunately. And I, my heart went out to him as he was sitting there. Now I, I, I did try to get him riled up as much as I could <laughs> by reading him passages and Hey, Phelan, what do you think about this? When they described you this way, what do you think about <laughs> yeah, your, how's your fiefdom today, Phelan? But like, I, I enjoy that book because it challenged both sides, right? There, it was a, in that, if you're not aware of that book, the, the plot is that two stats guys um, who are really smart and they really know their saber metrics and, and spin rate and all this stuff. They, uh, they got kind of control and kind of like a GM tor- sort of role of a, of a very low level independent team um, in Sonoma, California. And they were kind of working in concert with the manager who Kevin and I both played with, who was our teammates. He was actually my locker mate. He was right next to me as I was reading this book about him. That and sucks. yeah, dude, it was, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. But, uh, so you know, love they, you, they, Phelan. Love you, Phelan. <laughs> I hope you're. I hope you're doing well in your fiefdom, wherever you are right now. 
but yeah, you know, they challenge the the notion that this is how a lineup should be made. This is how a pitcher should be used and all these different things. And there was a lot of interesting data to back it up. And they also struggled because there are a lot of things they didn't quite understand, you know, folding in with the, with a real, with a real team and how guys react to certain situations and, you know, the mental side of the game and how players have their ups and downs and their routines and all that stuff. There's a lot going on on both sides of it. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out just in the next couple of years. Right. Yeah. And I think the, the teams that are doing it right, um, you know, the Cubs probably, uh, I know, I think they use a lot of numbers, but at the same time, they are pretty, uh, they're using the mental side, like, you know, assigning veterans, having a good clubhouse atmosphere, because those things are important. Um, so they're crushing numbers and, you know, they're creating a good atmosphere. And I think that's kind of the middle ground where, you know, that we're seeing the most successful teams maybe are, you know, kind of figuring that out. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Totally agree. Well, hey, I want to thank you again for stopping in, listening to uh, my great guest today, Kevin Vance, as we talk pitching. And feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think about the show. And we'll see you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.